Hi, my name is Kirk Hamilton, your host of the Staying Healthy Today Show. This is a show where we bring you key experts in the fields of nutrition, prevention, integrative, and lifestyle medicine. Uh, today's show topic is reversing the diabetes epidemic in the Indian population and the world through plant-based nutrition. And my guest today is uh, Dr. Shalesh Kashal, MD, PhD. He is a, a retinal specialist ophthalmologist and I've heard him speak on several occasions and he's just uh, been very eloquent, scientific, open-minded and I wanted to talk to him about the diabetes epidemic and in his uh, native country of India and then maybe extrapolate to the world and what he, how he thinks we can approach this uh, problem. So welcome Dr. Kashal for being on the show today. Thank you. So what's happening in India with diabetes? The incidence of diabetes, especially type 2 diabetes, is rising exponentially at an alarming rate in India as it is throughout the world in fact. I've mentioned in my talks previously the WHO has a series of projections on terms of diabetic and multiple studies suggest that in India by the year 2020 we'll have 300 million new diabetics, China 200 million and US 100 million. That's with just three countries that's 600 million new diabetics and that's a staggering public health problem. But I, th I think it speaks to a larger problem of what is inciting or causing diabetes. And as uh, you and I have discussed and uh, I've spoken about and is well recognized, it appears to be influenced by diet far and away compared to any other single contributor to the, the rising of diabetes and, and frankly all other chronic diseases that are associated with diabetes. So what has happened in, let's take India for example, in the last, I don't know, 30, 50, 20, 30, 40 years, what has changed so much in their, their diet if you're gonna kind of blame it on that? Right. What's happened? Well, it's remarkable. As we go to India, most of our family lives in India. It's interesting to see the transformation of the traditional Indian diet, in part with the influence of Western food and Western restaurants, fast food restaurants in particular, there's been a tremendous uh, increase in those foods, fried foods in particular, or and or processed foods. That's on one side. Uh, on the other side is uh, indeed the issue that, say for example in the North Indian diet, uh, there's quite a bit of oil use, processed oil. Although the, the fruits and vegetables intrinsically are healthy for you. Some of the oils that are used uh, are clearly, uh, that are used in preparing the foods is, is clearly affecting the diet. So is that in the actual cooking method or is it in processed foods where the oil is put in there? Uh, that's a wonderful question. Uh, so it's both in the cooking method and in the processed foods. There's, there's also the issue of course that there is quite a bit of consumption of refined sugars instead of the sugars that are found naturally in fruits and vegetables. That's also risen markedly, especially with the consumption of carbonated beverages, sodas of all types, including diet sodas as well. So if I was in India a hundred years ago, what food products, have, I mean, okay, we got more fast food, we got more fried food, we got more sugary food, but why does that happen? Is that because people are moving to the city areas to get more jobs and there's more processed that's food it. there? That's exactly right. right. Uh, like that, that's a, that's uh, very insightful. In fact, even though the greatest amount of population lives in the villages and the small towns, the jobs are found in the cities. And so the major cities like 
Mumbai, Delhi, Bangalore, right? Chennai, Calcutta. That's where the populations are exploding. When you go to India to visit, you'll notice in all these cities there's major high-rises coming up and there's all these cranes everywhere as people are, you know, real estate people are, and builders are building these high-rises and bringing more jobs, for, uh, obviously, for the city, but it also puts a strain on the food chain as well. So, obviously, there's more processed carbohydrate with sugar and oil, and there's more fried. So what has happened to animal food consumption? Has it gone up or down with this migration? So that's a great question. I'm not aware of any specific studies about that, but I do know in general there has been an increase in the number of non-vegetarians in India. As you know, um, most Hindus don't consume meat, but that trend has been changing over the last uh, 20 years or so. 30 years, I would say. Uh, in fact, it's been written on and, and published. Uh, it's been studied uh, both by nutritionists and epidemiologists. Well, if they're eating more westernized, it would seem like they would be eating more animal products. I mean, I know, yes, I know in, China, absolutely. in China, I have a, a chart from 1980 to 2010 when they went from 1% to 12% diabetics in the population. Yeah. Meat consumption just correlating with that. Yes, yes, along yes. Along with fat consumption. Yes. So we have the problem with industrialization and with people moving to city centers, they eat more processed food, sit on their butts and eat more animal food. Yeah. And there's more sugar thrown in there, so we got the whole nine yards. Yes. So how do you, uh, as a ophthalmologist, but when you see your patients, and, and we'll get to maybe a little ophthalmology and how diabetes affects the retina, but yeah. how do you take a diabetic and you say, let's change? Yeah, that, that's a wonderful question. So, so I wear two hats. I'm a uh, ophthalmologist and retina specialist, and my PhD is in biochemistry. And my area of interest in biochemistry over the last six, seven years is in nutritional biochemistry and metabolic diseases. Um, so I, I couple blessed to see patients and I couple both of those interests together. If I just back up for a step, uh, the retina is the most metabolically active tissue in the body and has the largest oxygen supply, part because it has the largest blood supply per unit volume, unit weight uh, in the body. So nearly every human disease has a retinal manifestation. So we can pick up early disease in the retina, high blood pressure, diabetics. Uh, many diabetics I've picked up, and I only, I'm not speaking of myself, but are my colleagues as well throughout the world. First physician that some of these diabetics see is a retina specialist because a change of vision or other, uh, they may notice other changes as well. So that's on one side, is catching the disease early. The other part is once it's recognized, I often work with my uh, internal medicine, primary care doctor colleagues, physician colleagues, even cardiologists as well, and say, hey, look, uh, we have an issue here. This patient may have diabetic retinopathy, for example, and we need to do something about it. And it's not just simply getting a set of blood work or what we might consider standard blood work, but we know that chronic diseases like diabetes, there's a significant amount of inflammation that accompanies and exacerbates the disease. Some people have even postulated that diabetes may be a consequence of an initial inciting inflammatory event in the body, particularly the, the pancreas itself. But in any case, be that as it may, I myself, perhaps there's a handful of us in, as retina specialists who actually evaluate the blood work ourselves and or other or order other specialty labs, as it were, to me that are critical biomarkers of exactly the metabolic status of a patient. So with that assessment, 
now we can begin at addressing the root causes of the disease itself. So let's take the diabetic. Do you do fasting insulin levels? I know yes. you probably do. I'm sure yes, you do fasting A1Cs. insulin, fasting blood sugar. The Kraft tests, which is a wonderful test that, that was developed or uh, standardized many years ago by Dr. Kraft, who was a pathologist. I wish I had a chance to meet him. He published on this, on his work. It's just really wonderful work in which he demonstrates. I think he, over his career, uh, he studied over 10,000 patients. And the test is actually is a modification of the glucose tolerance test, where a patient is given a bolus of glucose. And so what is measured is not only blood sugar, but also insulin levels simultaneously. And he scored these patients and identified five different categories of people who, uh, based on their glucose and insulin response to a glucose bolus uh, over time, over a four-hour period, was able to categorize these patients. And of the many important observations he made, one of them that to me is most striking is that people fall in and out of diabetes, in, in and out of a diabetic state. And so that that when you read his original papers, you immediately recognized, and he, may, he didn't use that language as I recollect, but it, what it points to is that diabetes is a reversible disorder. So I wanna jump right into the fire, and that's carbohydrates. So <laughs> it's one of my pet peeves, and I don't wanna give my, well, maybe some of my listeners know my opinion, but so we always hear carbs that cause diabetes, get off carbs, I mean, I hear that all the time. Right. So you have, patient who's at risk for diabetes, got some retinal problems, you want to jump on it early. What do you tell them to do with carbohydrate and how to eat it? So it is an interesting question. So what I tell them is getting rid of a simple uh, refined carbohydrates for sure, because that obviously spikes blood sugars and spiking a blood sugar leads to a concomitant insulin rise and in one, of the, one of the consequences of an increased levels of insulin is inflammation. And now you're in a self-feeding cycle of inflammation and insulin resistance, which go hand in hand. So I, I, I do talk to them about reducing simple carbohydrate intake for sure. Now with that is of course caloric restriction, because we know that reducing calories reverses type 2 diabetes for sure. No matter what you do. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. So if you can reduce the calories even by 15, 20, some people ask me, well, you know, should I be eating three meals a day? I said, look, everyone is biochemically unique. If you're comfortable doing that, then yes, do that. Other people are comfortable with, let's say, a 12, 14, 16 hour fast between their last meal and the time that they eat next, uh, the following day. So it, it, we really try to, or I try to talk to my patients about that. I think this is something, unfortunately, in the U.S., perhaps suspect worldwide, physicians don't spend enough time talking to their patients about. In other words, how they actually go about eating the calories or the foods that they're... Well, so let's stay on the carbs thing because it's still, it's, it's so important because I hear it every day. Yeah. So what type of carbohydrates do you allow your patients to eat? Those that are found naturally in, in fresh fruits and f uh, vegetables. Okay, so right. th but now you've you haven't put in any starchy vegetables. You haven't put in, let's say we're in India, yeah. uh, lentils and beans and, yes. and, and rice. So yes. are you saying no to those or yes to those or kind of, sort of, or what? Well, so to those, I, uh, I have no problems with those per se. It's also a combination of how much and how they're prepared. Like for example, in India, lentils and legumes and others, uh, grains are often soaked 
right? And that soaked water is thrown away, and then those are boiled, prepared, for example, dal and so on, right? So that, that is uh, much healthier. Or, uh, like, for example, in South India, they will boil rice, throw the water away, and then reboil it, right? So you're getting rid of quite a bit of the carbohydrates in that water, and basically you're eating fiber at that point. So what about fat consumption and the relationship to carbohydrates or let's get meat? It amazes me that no one thinks meat's a problem when you talk about diabetes and carbohydrates. So I talk to my patients. That's interesting you say that. I do talk to them. I tell them it's reducing yes, reduce eating meats, fish, chicken, all of it, right? Okay. Red meat. And you know what's remarkable to me is so many of my patients, I tell them, you know, I'm vegetarian, right? Mostly vegan, we'll have eggs once in a while, but I, I would say our family is, is vegetarian, we are vegetarian, and I kid with them, look, I'm six foot five, it stunted my growth, <laughs> uh, with God's good. <laughs> so you, got, you got the protein thing in there at the same, at the same time as uh, Yeah, <laughs> so, so I, I, I think you're also familiar, and I, I educate patients about this, there's published studies again. A, a good vegetarian or vegan diet has enough variety of protein which means also variety of amino acids, better than what you find in meats. Uh, that's actually well published on as well. And indeed, there's other studies to show that children who are v vegetarian or vegan tend to grow one to two inches taller than their, their hmm. colleagues who are eating meat all the time. All right. So we, I, I'm, I'm jumping around here because I'm taking two topics at once. Gonna I know you're going to get back to the <laughs> that's next that's generation right. in a minute, but, but yeah. this, this similar diet. Yes, it is. So we've talked about getting simple sugars out of the diet. That would be soft drinks, then added sugar, added sugars. What I always struggle with with people when when they say they get off carbs, they also get off oil and sugar that goes with that carb. So for an example, when you have a muffin. Yeah. There's fat in there, and it's an omega-6 fat. Yes. And no one ever talks about the fat. They talk about the, the carb. Yes. So you got an inflammatory omega-6. Yes. And then you probably got added sugar in with the refined white flour. Absolutely. So Absolutely. when people say they get off carbs, they don't... I always say, did they get off a bowl of wheat berries? No. Yeah. They got off this conglomeration of yes. stuff. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, which is, which is really what, fortunately, what's happened in the U.S. worldwide is this... You're right. It's this combination of the carbs, the oils, and the added sugar to it. Yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And so that's You're, you and I are on the same right. page. So on I that. think that's why it's easier for some people to say, "I can't define that's a good carb and this is a bad carb." So let's get rid of all of them and go on a paleo diet. Yeah. Because it's just easier mentally. Yes. And then they see results because they threw out a lot of fat and oil with that carb. Yes. All right. And I can assume that really the same anti-diabetic diet, lower amounts of meat, only on processed carbohydrate if you're going to eat it, lots of fruits and vegetables, is a similar diet to protecting the eye. Because you Absol said something absolutely. to me that blew me away. It was three years ago. I remember I go, I came back to the clinic and go, this guy said that it, it's coronary artery disease of the eye. There's, I mean, there's plaque in there. Yeah. You know, and I was like jumping up and down and, and <laughs> I didn't get my anywhere. But um, right. So talk about this diet reversing macular degeneration or preventing it. And is that not the number one cause of blindness? No, no, no. Cataracts is number one. Glaucoma, macular degeneration, and diabetic disease. In particular, as I was mentioning earlier today, is that the number one cause of missed work days in the United States 
is swelling from leaky blood vessels in the area of central good vision in diabetics. It causes diabetic macular edema. So it's not only a medical disease, it's an economic problem. It's a very serious economic problem. But coming to macular degeneration, what's quite remarkable to me, when I first read this when I was a resident many years ago at uh, Doheny Eye Institute, USC Department of Ophthalmology, is that the risk fa same risk factors that are associated with coronary artery disease are the same risk factors associated with macular degeneration and which turn out to be the same risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. And as my understanding um, deepened and my reading and meeting other uh, clinicians and scientists outside of my own field of ophthalmology and vision research broadened, it was quite remarkable to me that so many of these diseases chronic diseases, in fact all of them that we can think of uh, now, there's well-published studies to show that insulin dysregulation appears to be one of the critical factors in promoting and sustaining the disease. And that comes back to quote-unquote diabetic state, even though you may not have what we call traditional end-organ damage, uh, the retinopathy, the strokes or kidney disease or neuropathy. Clearly, glucose, the way our bodies dispose or metabolize glucose, is affected in all of these chronic diseases. Not that I want to get into this topic, but just because statins are used so much, and you said it was a, a vascular disease. Since statins are used so much, yes. do you see them have benefit in the eye? Not, not really. There, there's one published paper from some colleagues at Mass Ioneer suggesting that high-dose statins may be useful. But uh, I haven't seen any follow-on studies, and uh, maybe they're uh, there and I, I haven't caught them in the published literature. But in general, uh, biochemically, it doesn't quite make sense to me to... Uh, to be using statins in general. That's another fun topic. I'm sure you've, you've covered that uh, elsewhere. I mean, statin use is uh, one of the common causes of reversible dementia, number one cause of muscle weakness in the United States, right? And I, at one point I, I read someplace, um, there, was, it, there was even a suggestion of, of starting young kids on statins, which is just simply unfathomable to me if, if, as a biochemist and as a clinician. Well, I, I see their use. I, I do some um, grant work once a week at a center which um, does pretty much traditional cardiology, the coronary calcium scan, CT angiography, and, and virtually everybody is on a statin that, that, that comes out of there. Let's get to the specifics of the, ma anti, the preventive macrogenerative diet we've kind of talked about as, yeah. as an anti-diabetic diet similar, but you have macrogeneration. So what do you tell people to do and how hopeful are you to slow it or reverse it? Yeah, so this is a wonderful question and I start by telling, telling patients that this is a chronic disorder similar to Alzheimer's, high blood pressure, glaucoma, coronary artery disease, obesity, age-related muscle loss, age-related bone marrow dysfunction, and identify with them what are some of the critical pathogenetic events, including low-grade inflammation in the body, and in the retina. As I mentioned earlier, that extremely high blood supply, large blood supply, I should say, to the retina is, so anything that's happening in the body is reflected and absorbed uh, in the retina. So we start with that, with the five or six crit critical pathogenetic events. Then I tell them about some of the remarkable studies on nutritional control of diabetes, experimental studies. I, I do talk to them about some of the published studies like the ARAD studies, which many people have heard of. I'm not a particular proponent, and, I, and I'll tell you why. 
is so the studies show, and, and I know those are my colleagues who designed those studies and published on them, is the studies show a very, very small benefit, a statistically recordable, uh, statistically significant recordable uh, benefit. But in terms of vision, a minimal effect on vision, that's one. And it took you know, a large number of patients, close to 10,000 patients over an extended period of time to record or observe that statistical difference uh, between the treated and untreated Could patients. Could you just say what's in the ERAS product? The six uh, uh, so the six vitamins include, I don't always remember them, so there's, there's A, uh, vitamin uh, A, C, E, zinc, and copper, copper. Uh, and there's there selenium? No, I don't know. No, no selenium. That's five. There, there's six in total. So, so that's on one side, uh, the actual results of the ARED study. There's also studies to show, epidemiological studies there's, and biochemical studies. There's about 40 to 41 essential vitamins and minerals we all require for proper functioning of the various enzymes and structural proteins that we have in our body. Well, approximately 80% of Americans are deficient in a set of them. Now, when I first ran across this work, I, that made me sit down and think and pause. I mean, that's a staggering number, right? What that tells you, it tells you something about the food supply and what we're consuming in, in the U.S., but there's, I'm sure it's similar to other places in the world. So a simple thing is, is why would you give six when you should replete the body of at least 40, 41 of them, right? The, the natural question is, well, do I test for all of them? I, I don't, in part because the testing itself, it's something that's not typically covered by Medicare or commercial insurance, and it requires out-of-pocket expense for the patient. And some patients want to take up that cost, and some patients don't. So my thinking is, well, geez, you know, let me at least replete them to some degree of these vitamins and minerals that are critical for the functioning of our bodies, given given this remarkable result. And that's with this the high potency multivitamin mineral yes, and some yes, specific other yes, stuff? Yes, exactly. Okay. So that's, that's one step. The other is the role of omega-3 fats. The retina has the largest concentration of omega-3 fats per unit weight in the entire body, more than the brain or the heart. So th there was a study to look at omega-3 fat supplementation. It was a follow-on of the ARADS-1 study. But in my mind, that study was done very poorly. There was no actual measurement of omega-3 and omega-6 fats before, during, or at the end of the study. And the placebo, as I best understood it, was an olive oil capsule that has naturally omega-3 fats plus omega-9 fats and to some degree omega-6 as well. And then the third is many, many Americans, people worldwide I believe now, are taking supplements including omega-3 fats and there was no scoring, even a food questionnaire to determine how much baseline supplements people were taking. So given that, I still recommend omega-3 fat supplementation to patients, but I tell them simultaneously is that, hey, geez, you've got to reduce the omega-6 fats. Absolutely. Because those are pro-inflammatory. And I, we have a discussion with them about so processed foods. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, it's, it's easy on the industry side to say, well, just give everybody omega-3 fats and sell them. Yes. But all those processed, all those carbs that people got off of yes. have omega-6 fat in them. Yeah, every single one of them. Absolutely. So we have this huge intake of those. Yes. And actually, a lot of the animals we feed, we feed omega-6 fats yes. instead of the natural grass fats. Yes. So we have... So that's part of the problem. Yes, it is. If we could reduce this side, we need less omega-3 fats. Yes. Okay, but so 
do you recommend the algae sources or the cod liver sources, the fish oil sources, or you don't care? You just want to get it in there. Exactly. Like some, for some people, they, they want to have the actual algal or sea plant sources. I'm fine with that. We have a discussion about that for those patients. Other patients, they're comfortable taking fish oil. I, I tell them, well, geez, you know, krill oil is perhaps even better than fish oil because it has astaxanthin, which is a wonderful amphipathic antioxidant. It works both at the cell membrane and within the cell. And then uh, cod liver oil, we have a discussion of that as well because not only is it rich in omega-3 fats, it has vitamins A, D, and E. The E protects the omega-3 and it's actually good for our bodies. And it has a series of compounds called the retinoids and the retinoids, uh, many years ago, we and others uh, published uh, that they uh, can improve the efficiency or the functioning of visual cells. So in the context of the retina, we talk specifically about uh, cod liver oil as well. But yes, that discussion has to be the omega-3 fats with a simultaneous discussion of omega-6 fats. How fast can you see changes? So that is a wonderful question. I'll tell you how I explain it to patients. It took decades for this, the disease to develop. Even, even detecting the earliest stages of macular degeneration or other macular diseases like diabetes, for example, it took decades to develop, as I was saying. And it, the way I describe it to patients is we're trying to turn this tanker around versus a speedboat. If you turn a speedboat around, you can turn it essentially on a dime, right? And it can head back to shore. Well, a tanker takes a little more time Patients, I tell them, this is something that's not going to happen in the next 30, 60, 90 days. It may. It may in some instances. Uh, and that's another fun conversation to have perhaps on another podcast. But we need to commit ourselves to doing this together, right? It's a partnership with the patient, and I describe it that way to them. In fact, we even have separate group visits with our patients on Saturday mornings because it reinforces having a group of people together who have a similar issue. But in some instances, we can see it more rapidly. Uh, of course, it's delightful and yeah, gratifying. Even within a month, we've seen it, right? Uh, I've seen it with patients. But um, again, that, that th those are exceptional circumstances, and we're still studying those patients to understand what is it about their retinas, both structurally and functionally. And of course, simultaneously, what is their metabolic status? Uh, and of course, related to that is uh, understanding their genomic uh, predisposition, not only for macular degeneration, but these other pathogenetic events, inflammation, oxidative stress, the insulin signaling pathway, the mTOR, autophagy, nutrient sensing pathway, how those changes in the genes that produce the proteins that regulate those pathways, how those are affected. So there's multiple components to this. I want to kind of wrap things up. So we, we've talked about, let's just talk about nutraceuticals and macular degeneration for a second. Yeah, so yeah. we're going to be on anti-diabetic diet or anti-eye diet, kind of similar. Yes, um, absolutely. So we've talked about the omega-3 fats, astaxanthin. I know you talked about turmeric a lot. If, if I could, I'd put it in the water. <laughs> of course, it's a challenge because turmeric is a fat-soluble compound, right. right? It's a hydrophobic compound compound. But so these types of compounds like turmeric, ashwagandha, the active ingredient, one of them is called withoferin A. I've also mentioned ligong tang from Chinese herbal medicine has a compound in it called celestrol, which we've published on. These types of compounds, I call them molecular rheostats. And so I, that's in, in distinction to a pharmaceutical agent. 
So just to review for a moment, pharmaceutical agents, typically the way they work is we identify, clinicians and scientists identify a protein as a potential drug target and a small molecule, a drug, or a biological agent like an antibody is found to bind specifically, very tightly to that protein and basically knock down the activity of that protein. Well, nature doesn't work that way, as, as I've mentioned. Uh, the way nature works is uh, she de um, has developed compounds uh, that affect multiple cellular pathways, proteins, all at once. And it rejiggers homeostasis or balance in the cell that may be stressed from environmental conditions. Typically those environmental conditions are what, well, for a plant it can be the environment itself and the nutrients that the plant is absorbing. Same way with us, our stressors in us are essentially the food and the water we consume, or the liquids I should say, and also our genetic makeup. So the idea is with these types of compounds like turmeric or the extracts of turmeric which contain the curcuminoids, these compounds are profoundly effective at re-establishing homeostasis or cellular balance because what they're doing is they're treating the tr true biochemical root cause of disease. And so it turns out not only are they useful in the retina, they're useful in the brain, heart, lung, liver, wherever these chronic diseases that we talked about before manifest themselves uh, initially. So you've got omega-3 fats, you've got astaxanthin, you've got curcuminoids, Any, a couple more on your high list? Uh, sorry, I mentioned a multi... Uh, a broad, uh, yeah, broad spectrum. Alpha-lipoic acid for sure. Alpha-lipoic acid. As an antioxidant or control blood sugar or both? Uh, both, but really the way I explain it to patients with alpha-lipoic acid is there's uh, very nice studies to demonstrate that it improves mitochondrial function. Right. right? So the mitochondria are the energy factories of the cell. And the number of mitochondria and the efficiency with which they produce energy and the currency of energy in the cell is a compound called ATP. But the way we, I explain it to patients is we, we know in macular degeneration and other disorders where it's been studied, all of these chronic disorders, frankly, that there's a decrease in the number of mitochondria and the efficiency with which they're producing ATP. So we want to bump that up. Exercise is a tremendous... Just, yeah, we, we have in our handout, we talk about this with patients, 30 minutes at least every day, even a good brisk walk. You don't need to you know, be sweating uh, profusely per se, right? But taking something like alpha-lipoic acid with a good multivitamin, you need that in the instance of uh, alpha-lipoic acid. There are studies to show it, along with N-acetylcarnitine, increases mitochondrial number and the efficiency with which they make ATP. Chelation therapy. Yeah. I, I sat in one of the integrated medicine meetings, I think it was 10 years ago, and I sat next to an ophthalmologist going to the airport and he goes, yes. I do IV chelation and I, he was just a big fan of it. Yes. I, I two cents on chelation. Yeah, so there were some studies many years ago looking at it, uh, essentially chelation or uh, plasmapheresis, which is a type of chelation, if you'd like to think of it that way. And it didn't have uh, positive results, but clearly heavy metals influence the functioning of visual cells in a negative way, not, not in a positive way. So one could imagine that chelation therapy, after assessing appropriately in a quantitative method the, the metal status of a patient, of course, uh, you can imagine it's going to help the functioning of every tissue. And as I said, the retina is incredibly metabolically active and so it's very sensitive to any perturbance 
including heavy metals. I forgot the last one, but that's all right. Give, give, give you a break. My, I think, you know, when I share with my elderly patients, I go, and you lose your vision. Oh, yeah. That's a big deal. Huge. Those are, independence, you know, is gone. Yes. And so there's a great intensity when I tell people about, you know, and I'd love to have more tools for, sure. for macular degeneration and such sure. in the eye because you lose that. Your independence is out the yeah. window. I mean, there's studies done uh, some years ago. I, I, I have to dig it out. But there's a, st a questionnaire that was sent to Americans. I, I think something like 10,000 Americans. If they had any disease or organ that was affected, what would be their biggest loss for them? And more than cancer, heart attack, stroke was loss of vision. That's a big deal. And as, like you said, uh, memory, of course, uh, comes in. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Uh, that'd be fun to talk to you about that, the link between Alzheimer's and the retina. For we'll example, the earliest changes found before cognitive impairment are in the retina. And so we as retina specialists can be on the forefront of helping turn the tide on Alzheimer's. I've never heard Alzheimer's. anybody say that. Yes, there's now published papers on this. To turn the tide of Alzheimer's disease by catching it in the eye and empowering patients by first ourselves learning about these diseases. And I've been fortunate to be around very talented clinicians and scientists my entire career. Blessed, really, is the right word. And colleagues, for example, like Dale Bredesen and others who are demonstrating reversal of Alzheimer's disease. He and I gave talks, keynote talks, at uh, the American College of Nutrition some years ago. And we chuckled because the biochemistry that we talked about was essentially the same. It was just a different organ tissue. I, I talked about macular degeneration. And we chuckled about the fact that we could probably give each other's talk. As we close, tell us, Dr. Koshal, about your, you know, you're an MD, PhD. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and then your clinic in Florida? Yes. And, and then how people go to your website or educate about your work? Sure, sure. So um, I've, our family's originally from India. We moved when I was about five years old. We moved to Michigan where my father, University of Michigan, where my father at Ann Arbor completed his master's in electrical engineering. He had a master's in mathematics from India. And then we moved to Vermont, which was an idyllic place to grow up. My dad was a research scientist at IBM. And his research division designed the hardware for the first IBM PCs. So we had a lot of fun conversations at dinner growing up. Always loved math and science and basketball. <laughs> so uh, I was very fortunate to go to Yale University as an undergraduate. Wanted to be a physicist, a theoretical physicist. Discovered I was really good at solving problems, but perhaps not so good at identifying what new problems needed to be solved. Ended up majoring in my senior year. I finished uh, molecular biophysics and biochemistry and knew that I wanted to be around people. Was blessed to go to Johns Hopkins Medical School. Wanted to be a neurosurgeon, actually. Uh, but I was really, again, very, very blessed to have doctors Irene and Ed Malmany, giants in the field of ophthalmology, as my mentors. I also at that time knew or discovered that I would like to pursue research. So I was fortunate to go to MIT and my thesis advisor for my PhD was a Nobel Prize winner, Dr. Hargobind Karana. He originally discovered the genetic code and then transitioned into vision biology and made just absolutely seminal contributions to our understanding of visual proteins. And then after that, I did my residency at USC Doheny Eye Institute, my retina fellowship at Washington University, St. Louis Barnes Retina Institute, with just amazing mentors. And then spent an additional year in London at Moorfields Eye Hospital with a remarkable mentor, uh, Professor Alan Bird, 
mentors and Professor Shomi Bhattacharya. And then came back to the U.S. and then uh, was briefly in the uh, University of Minnesota, but ended up at University of Florida for many years. I had an endowed chair in an endowed lab, which was wonderful, made wonderful contributions, and then eventually transitioned to private practice. And yes. your clinics? Yes, yeah, so we have multiple clinics. Our practice is called Comprehensive Retina Consult, and it's www comprehensiveretinaconsultants.com. Uh, we have clinics in the villages in uh, Citrus County, Florida, Ocala, and we're looking potentially to open one or two others. But we're very committed to taking care of patients, what I believe is not only the standard of care, but extending beyond the standard of care in evidence-based medicine uh, to treat these types of chronic disorders like macular degeneration, and others. We're very fortunate that patients come from around the country to visit us. Uh, we have state-of-the-art diagnostic equipment. I, I think it rivals nearly any academic center in the U.S. or worldwide uh, that I've been fortunate to visit. And the reason why we did that is because I wanted to have the best diagnostic tools to properly and quantitatively understand structure and function of the retina. Plus, we have other non-invasive testing to measure, say, for example, vascular health, autonomic... How do you do the vascular health? Uh, we've been using uh, the... It's called a max pulse system. You're familiar I, with I it? I tested it, yeah. Uh, and endopad as well. We also have more recently been fortunate to have the glyco-check test, which is a measure of the glycocalyx in our blood vessels. That's another fun do you, conversation. Do you use arterosol? Uh, no, I actually use a, a different company, okay. right? And the blood work, the non-invasive testing, structure and function testing of the retina, plus these other non-invasive, uh, I, I call them physiological tests, really, right? Of the autonomic nervous system and so on. Those, to me, uh, are giving perhaps a more complete insight, not only to the physiology, but of the biochemistry of what's happening in a patient. And I think that kind of insight is what's going to allow us as clinicians and as scientists to really penetrate and also, again, uh, reverse, uh, minimally stop, but reverse these disorders, which are just debilitating our planet. I know I want to stop here, but how many colleagues do you work with in your retinal institute? It's many? myself and, and our team, yes. Like about how many? Oh, are you the... I'm the only ophthalmologist. Ophthalmologist. Oh, I know I get it. Now I get it. I was thinking, man, he's got five or ten ophthalmologists thinking this way. No, no. It's okay. A, yeah, right. that's a, a one day. <laughs> I, I'd like to actually set up a training program. In fact, I've been contacted by medical students at some of the places where I've been uh, invited as a visiting professor about uh, doing a fellowship with us. And I mean, I, I, I sit here, and, and, and I'm not saying it because you're here, but you have every aspect of what, you, what I would want in that you've been trained impeccably traditionally, you're open-minded, and we, even within the integrative community, you actually associate with people who probably wouldn't agree with each other, and yet you can see it all and put it together, which, which is quite remarkable. So anyway, I'm going to wrap this up. Thank right. you so much for thank coming on Thank you so much for today. having me. Yeah, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I want to thank you, the audience, for listening to this edition of the Staying Healthy Today show. Until next time, stay and be well.